Well, welcome to church. Now I've got no hands. So I don't know how I'll be able to talk. Um, but we'll, we'll see how we go. I want us to reflect um, this morning on a couple of things. Firstly, uh, if you don't know me, my name's Rowan, one of the pastors here. It's great to have you together uh, as we look at this part of God's Word. I want us to reflect this morning on friendships and relationships. I want us to think through the question, who are you friends with and why are you friends with them? I don't know if you ever thought through the second question of that. Uh, to have a think through who your friends are and then why are you friends with those people? Relationships kind of seem to be um, really a, a common concept of all human life, the key component if you want. Uh, we all seem to be built for relationships. Some of us have got more relationships than others. Some of us have deeper relationships than others. But kind of studies have shown throughout time that if you remove people from relationships, they go crazy. And I mean crazy. Um, so solitary confinement. In the 1950s, some psychologists, particularly one by the name of Harry Harlow, investigated the effects of solitary confinement. And he did it with monkeys, not to kind of hurt people too much. So they kind of did this experiment with monkeys where they put them in a room and, and left them. They fed them. They had access to all the basic things they needed, but they were on their own for long periods. Um, this is what he says. Monkeys kept in solitary confinement ended up, and I quote, Profoundly disturbed, given to staring blankly and rocking in place for long periods, circling their cages repetitively and mutilating themselves. Most readjusted eventually, but not those that have been caged the longest. Twelve months of isolation almost obliterated the animals socially. Animals, monkeys it seems, aren't made to be on their own. And I think it's even more the case when it comes to people, to us in 1951, another set of researchers did a study on humans. You'd be thankful that it was um, university students. So, you know, they're used to having not much sleep and being on their own sometimes, but no. Uh, but they did it, um, it was only supposed to be uh, for six weeks total. Problem is, the study only went for seven days because they left after that time. They, they couldn't handle it anymore. Um, nearly every student lost the ability, and again I quote, to think clearly about anything for any length of time while several others begin to suffer hallucinations, one man could see nothing but dogs. There you go. So you stay, you know, on your own and dogs just come up. We are built for relationships. And this part of God's Word this morning helps us to think through why we are built that way and how we are to use that reality of, of how we've been built. Why is it, though, that some people we love being round and others we can't stand? Have you ever had that kind of experience? It's not that you hate those people you can't stand. You just, you just don't love being around them. Why is that? What, what is it about them? Now, I'm no psychologist. I did one year of psychology my first year of university. Um, but I think that the people that we like to be around are those that we respect and admire. We kind of want to know more from them. We want to be close to them and understand them and get their input and let them have influence on us. And those we don't admire or respect, we tend, we, we tend to kind of step away from. Uh, we kind of have a bit of distance and, and step back from. I think that's one of the reasons that we flock to famous people that we admire. Uh, we're like, oh, I'd love to get close. I thought I'd just ask, have people here ever been in, in the presence of famous people? Like, who's the most famous person you've ever been in the presence of? I'd love to hear you. This is a non-rhetorical question. See, see your hands. Yeah, yeah. Tara Banks? Ooh. Anyone else? Let's, I want to hear a few here. This is interactive sermon time. 
Okay. Any, no one else is ever. Okay. Yeah. Out the back. Yeah. Alex. John Key, the big man. Good work. Anyone else? Ice Cube. If you don't know who that is, ask Mina later. This is someone who isn't living in your freezer. Uh, yeah. Who is that? Sorry. Edmund Hillary. Wow. That's cool. Now, if you just went, wow, that's cool. Why, why did you say that? You see, for me, it's like, wow, I really respect Edmund Hillary. We have this thing about people, famous people. We, we kind of flock to them. Uh, here's, here's, as I'm a pastor, right? And so pastors, we, we, we look at other pastors. So here's my famous pastor picture. That's me and Jay Pipes, right? John Piper. Now, when I originally took this photo, I took it, we was at a conference, we had a chat, brief chat. He's not a really close friend of mine or anything like that. But I took the photo and then I went home and I went, why did I take this photo? Like, what, what was the point of me actually taking a photo with John Piper? He's a great guy, yes, but, and there's some encouragement that I've got from some of his teaching. You can take John away. Thanks, John and Rowan. Thanks, great. It's enough for John um, and me. Uh, <laughs> Uh, why, why did I have it? And there was part of me that, that really, while he'd been in, encouraging to me and a part of, you know, I listened to some of his teaching, I read some of his books and found that helpful. Uh, I, I think there was part of me that wanted to go, look, I've met John Piper, right? And somehow we get our identity, our sense of I'm special because I've been in the presence of someone special. And it's like, you know, I still haven't washed that hand since I touched John Piper. I have actually. Um, But then I realized that what I was trying to do was to gain importance, worth, from being close to someone who I viewed as as special, as a a great influence, as respectable. Um, And I realized that the reason I took the photo was to kind of say to people, look at who I've met. And so I promised myself from that moment on that I'd only ever show people that photo to show how stupid my motivations are. That actually I was trying by that in some way to go, how great you are, Rowan, when no, we shouldn't do that at all or, or should we we find ourselves doing that in many different ways but there's part of what i did there and i think what we do that's exactly right so the writer of hebrews has been showing us for the last 10 chapters how great jesus is he's been holding him out as the great promised king who's come who's who's um, come as the, as the messiah the one who is the high priest who stands between us and God, who ushers us into the heavenly sanctuary. He he brings us into God's presence. And what we get now in in chapter 10, verse 19 onwards, is the writer of Hebrews spell out the incredible significance of what Jesus has done. And listen to what he says. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. What's he saying? You and I, if you trust in Jesus, have access to God. We have boldness to enter the presence of God. Forget about our earthly heroes, about Obama, Elizabeth, you know, the Queen or John Piper or whoever it is. We... (laughs) have access to God to call him our dad, as Sean said. We can come into his presence, not just on earth, but in heaven. We have boldness, says the writer of Hebrews. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, through his work as a high priest, you can come near to God. To God. Despite all our sin all our brokenness, all our inadequacies and and feebleness, 
we can draw near to God. Now, is that not something to be excited about? To boast in that we have access to the presence of the creator of the universe, that we can call him our dad? I want to ask today, have you grasped the significance of that? That it is possible to know the creator of all things, the one who sustains you and upholds you and who created you. I don't know where you've come from today, what you're, you think about God and Jesus, but what this part of this letter is saying is that because of Jesus, you can know God. Who better is there to know? If he's the one who made all things, who more respectable is there? Who would you want to learn from other than the one who creates and sustains all things? This is phenomenal. And I think we lose that reality, don't we? You know, when you wake up in the morning, sometimes I wake up and I might pray, oh Lord, help me to have a, a day today that I honor you. I forget that I can talk to God. I lose the significance of how great this is. If you don't yet trust in Jesus, I want to say, please see what the writer of Hebrews is saying to you today. You can come into God's presence and not be wiped out. Not be, not be judged for the, the things that you and I have both done. But you can call him your dad because of what Jesus has done. And that does make us special. While me standing next to John Piper doesn't mean that I've got any of John Piper's kind of abilities in preaching or his, his scholarly work, but being in the presence of God means my sin's been dealt with. I can call God my dad. There's a reality about how special we are because of Jesus, because of what Jesus has done. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near. With a true heart, in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Christians are special not because of anything in and of themselves, but because of the blood of Jesus who washed us clean, who is that pure water that gives us assurance, the certainty of life forever, the certainty of relationship with God. And so the writer of Hebrews says, given you have access to this God, Draw near to Him. Draw near to Him. If I'm honest, even though I'm, I'm in the Word often, I don't wake up going, I get to come before God who is my dad often. This passage is saying we have a phenomenal privilege. So come to the God who made you and who loves you. Don't stand back. Don't be shy, but come in with, with boldness. Just like a child interrupts their dad when they're talking to anyone, so we can come to our Father. The writer of Hebrews is saying, do that. Come to Him. Come to know Him more and more through His Word, by His Spirit. Because there is nothing that can tear that reality away because it's been secured in Jesus. No matter how intense the pain of life, how great the persecution we go through, how terrible the loss. Because of what Jesus has done, if we trust in Him, we can still say that the thing that we treasure most, the thing that is most valuable to me, the thing that defines who I am, is what Jesus has bought for me. And He's already done it. So draw near to God. And drawing near, it's not a physical act. 
I think often people think you know, we can draw near to God's presence as if we can jump on a rocket ship and drive into the heavens wherever God is right now. No, it's by trust in Jesus and the work of the Spirit that we have access to speak to God. The day will come when we are face to face with God, when Jesus returns and deals with all sin and all, all things are put right. That picture in Revelation 21, no more sickness, no more crying, no more pain. That day will come when we will be physically again in the presence of God. But the writer of Ephesians can say, if you are in Christ, you are seated in the heavenly realms right now. Our access to God isn't a physical presence. You know, we don't jump on a rocket ship or climb Mount Everest to be closer to God. What we do is we look for the way He's revealed Himself to us, to know Him more, to look at the Spirit-filled, Spirit-breathed Word of God. And here we hear God to us. We seek Him. We seek His work to know Him more and more. Drawing near to God isn't a physical act. It's not something that you can see this side of Jesus' return. But you can see its fruit. You can see the fruit of someone who is drawing near to God. You see it when that person repents, when, when, when their lives are turning back to Jesus and wanting to put Him first in all that we do. When someone repents from a sense of entitlement that we have to go, wow, I can now treat God as my dad. When someone takes his word seriously and says, not my will, but your will. When someone is joyful because of even in the midst of terrible suffering, they can say, my greatest treasure I still have. That's the fruit of people drawing near to God and God's word, that living and active word, judging the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, changing us to be more like Jesus. Sometimes I'm just so busy doing stuff. You know, the normal answer we give to people when they say, how are you doing? You're like, oh, pretty busy. We all say that. We're all getting on with doing stuff. But what an amazing privilege we miss out on if we don't make time to draw near to God. To schedule time in our day to say, I want to understand God through His Word. I want to speak to you as my dad. In prayer, we come into His presence. <laughs> if we don't run to Him, if we don't see the world from His perspective, how are we going to be made more and more like Jesus? How are we going to hold on? So the writer of Hebrews says, given everything I've said in these last 10 chapters, who Jesus is, what He's achieved for you, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. It's an amazing privilege, isn't it? Amazing. Well, as people who have this boldness and confidence to draw near to God, he then tells us the next thing that we need to do is there's three lettuces, and I don't mean the, the vegetable. Um, there's three lettuces in this passage that are helpful to help us remember. Number one, let us draw near. Number two, let us hold on. Look at verse 23. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. As we draw near to God, we need to hold on to the faithfulness of Jesus. The assurance that we have in what Jesus achieved at the cross is done for us. We just need to hold on to that. 
We don't need to try and achieve salvation. We don't try and keep going through life going, oh, I've got to be good enough for God so then he'll treat me as his son or daughter and I can be in his presence. No, Jesus has done that for us. So the writer of Hebrews says, look to Jesus and hold on. It's done. It's finished. You're not a Christian because you were born in a Christian family or in a Christian country. You are a Christian if you trust in Jesus, if you are holding on to the one who gives you access to God. And that holding on, it's present tense. It's not like, oh, I held on once. There was a time when I trusted Jesus and I grasped onto him and that was great. No, it's saying the Christian life is kind of characterized by holding on to Jesus. Letting his word dwell in us richly. Taking him at his word. Letting his word mold us and shape us. He is our hope. He's our confidence. Not just when times are tricky. We don't go, oh, gee, it's hard at the moment. I better open up the Bible to make sure I've you know, got stuff. No, we need to hold on to God's word in times of plenty and in times of need. Because in times of need, we are just as likely, if not more likely, to go, I don't need God. When things are going well, the wonder of being brought into the presence of God disappears. And we, we don't need that anymore, do we? we, we we're happy with where we are. A friend of mine uh, that I know, I don't know him very well, so an acquaintance, um, he just went across uh, to about 11 kilometers from the ISIS front line. Went across to Syria and Afghanistan to kind of see what was going on there. And he wrote this blog post, and I think it really shows the danger that we're in and why we need to hold on to what Jesus has done. Let me read a little bit from you. It's a significant section. My biggest concern about the trip was the presence of ISIS, and more specifically, my desire to get home alive. Unlike the Apostle Paul, I didn't board the plane thinking to live is Christ, to die is gain. My thought was to live is Christ, to die in the hands of ISIS would be awful. But it also forced me to ask myself a question that I'd never considered before. If I met ISIS, will I side with Jesus? Will I choose comfort or the cross? It sounds so trivial, even embarrassing to even articulate this question now. I was only in the country for a couple of days. But for many of the Christians we met, this isn't a hypothetical question. Over and over again, as we visited the camps filled with thousands of internationally displaced people, our brothers and sisters, terrified that this threat had taken them, sorry, (laughs) our brothers and sisters testified that this threat had taken them to God. Their faith had been strengthened and their love for God had increased as a result of their suffering. One brother shared, and I quote, Now I know Jesus. Not like before, though. I was happy back then. I had more money, a big house. I was a rich man, but no love. Isis, and I'm still quoting, was a gift from God because I now know the love of God more than ever before. When we heard this testimony, we didn't know how to respond. Could you ever imagine saying that? Two days into the trip, uh, we'd met with many persecuted Christians and had been 12 Ks from the Isis front line. And yet, over dinner that evening, I was struck with the following thought. Surely my iPhone is more dangerous than Isis. Might sound like a ridiculous statement, but here's what I observed. ISIS was driving Christians to God. iPhones are drawing Christians away from God. I didn't say this glibly. I saw firsthand the horror of my brothers and sisters and what they are experiencing. ISIS is evil. 
The suffering they inflict is terrible. The pain Christians have been subjected to is unimaginable. The hope in this life is almost non-existent. Everything should be done to eliminate ISIS and to help Christians escape this suffering. And yet, somehow in His sovereignty, as He has done before, God is using this terrible situation to call His people away from the things of the world and deeper into His arms. I can see why people were taken aback that my wife let me go on this trip. ISIS is dangerous. But I now believe we should be concerned by a much more everyday risk. I can't believe your wife let you buy an iPhone. That sounds silly. Let me ask you a question. Is your iPhone or whatever smartphone you have driving you toward God or drawing you away from Him? It's powerful, isn't it? Hold on, says the writer of Hebrews. When times are good, it's so easy to forget what needs we have. Ask the question, are you being drawn closer to God in your daily walk? Are you holding on to the gospel? Are you prepared to make radical decisions to block things that are pulling you away from God? To hold on to the confidence we have is to actively make decisions day by day to keep trusting Jesus. Radical decisions. I'm not going to stand here and, and say what they are for each of us. They'll be different for all of us. But to take God seriously. It's so easy to waver, isn't it? To find our comfort in, in so many things that in the end are not important. We're in great danger of letting go. Forgetting the awesome wonder of knowing the God who made us and loved us. And so, the writer of Hebrews shows us another dimension of the Christian life. Shows another way that relationships are so important. We have access to God. Yes, we have relationship with God. And we have a duty to one another. Look at verse 24. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When I recognize what Jesus has achieved for me and then look at the things that concern me in life, how trivial my concerns so often are. Have a think for a moment. What has concerned you in the last week or month? What issues have you been trolling over in your brain, going backwards and forwards over, waking up in the morning a bit? What, what are those issues? Maybe for a sec, why don't you just for a, spend a second, write a couple of them down. Here's an outline in front of you. There. What are the things that you've been concerned with in the last few weeks? Let me give you a second to do that. Just have, have a think through this. As I reflected on that question this week, I reflected that even though my job is to be teaching and preaching and encouraging others in the Word, so often there were concerns in my life that had nothing to do with others' salvation in Jesus. There were concerns to do with how things would affect me, 
how the world around would affect me and what that would affect it would do to me and how I'd feel because of that or how it would affect potentially my family. The writer of Hebrews says, get serious, Rowan. We need to be concerned for one another. For one another. Not about the things of this world, but one another. Sorry. And then he kind of goes on to show five different ways we need to have this concern. Uh, and he spells them out here, and they're in the outline. <coughs> Number one is promoting love and good works. And here again, you see, fruitfulness is the key. We're to have a concern, not just for how we are going in the Christian life, but for one another to be fruitful. Again, I asked myself as, as I went through this, is my concern just for others just staying in Jesus? Or is my concern for others to keep being fruitful in their Christian walk? To actually be godly and growing and, and seeing people come to know Jesus and remain in Jesus and doing works that are, well, given by God to do. Loving the poor, caring for our church family. There's a temptation to think that the base level of Christianity is kind of like, you're a Christian. And this is the really keen level of Christianity. And that's the one where we see fruit. That's the one where you want to encourage others to see fruit. But the writer of Hebrews knows no distinction between those two. He's saying that the Christian life is about being concerned for one another's fruitfulness and faithfulness. Now, we kind of know this. But is that the way we live? Is that what we use our time for, our energy for? One of the marks of a mature Christian community is that they're accountable to one another. There's a a culture of going to people and encouraging them and expressing concern and love for people's faithfulness and their fruitfulness. One of the marks of of a real Christian, a mature Christian community is a real rawness and an openness to caring for one another, knowing what the scriptures say and openly being corrected about it lovingly challenged about it we should love feedback from others because we exist not to like you know look down our noses at people and go oh you're getting that wrong but we're together to make sure we endure to the end to make sure we're fruitful that God can use the skills and abilities and gifts and resources he's given us for his glory this passage makes me ask are you doing that are we doing this Or do we say, that's way too personal? It's too personal to ask those questions. The culture around us is so individualistic, isn't it? The world around us says, only I have the right to decide what's right or wrong for me. How dare you ever call me out on anything? I decide what I do with my life, who I sleep with, where I spend my money. It's nobody's business but mine. How dare you ever say that? Friends, that is just not Christian. That's not Christian. In our culture, our highest value is self-determination. I've got the right to decide what's right or wrong for me. The Bible says no. You, You can't hold that right and be part of Christian community. Let me say it again. You cannot hold the right to say, I decide what's right or wrong for me and be part of Christian community. The writer of Hebrews is calling us to say we need to love and care for one another. Now, Police, we're not to go around being the, you know, the rebuking police. To kind of walk up to people and go, oh, you suck, you did that. 
and, and kind of say, look what you're doing here, man. You, I can't believe you did that. No, we'd have come up to one another and go, man, I struggle in this area. Hey, bro, I noticed that. How are you going there? <laughs> We're all people who've rejected God. None of us have our lives together. You know, the, the fact that we think that there are some sins that are more shameful than others, how dare we? What we're actually saying is the smaller ones that I commit, they're okay. No. Jesus died so that you and I could be washed clean. Just one of those small sins is all that it takes for us to deserve death and judgment and separation from God's goodness forever. We have no right to walk up to others and going, oh, look at you, I can't believe you'd ever do that. We need to walk up to others and say, hey, how are you going? I'm just concerned about you here. I'm struggling in these areas. I haven't got it all together. But I want to make sure that you and I, that we're both trusting Jesus on the day Jesus comes back. And more than that, I want to make sure that you and I, we are both being as fruitful as we possibly can. That God is using us to grow us. We need to be both ready to say those words and to receive them because both are hard. They're hard to say. We need to, when, when someone comes to us, our immediate reaction, well, I don't know, if, if you're as ungodly as I am, my immediate reaction is, well, you did this. <laughs> you want to just show what they did wrong and be like, well, you haven't done that thing. And um, rather than saying, is there something they can see that I haven't? Is there something that they're showing that I haven't understood and try and work through that and then hear that? That doesn't mean we don't say, hey, you know, I, thank you. That's helpful. Maybe I disagree. Uh, be gr- but it doesn't mean we don't also love and care for others too. <laughs> but we need to be willing to do the hard work and not just pulling back and going, oh, it's all too hard. Uh, one of the things of our culture that is great is this idea of, in Kiwi culture of humility. That we love, um, it's almost the absolute virtue. That I want to make sure that I don't stand out as though I know things, or I'm, I'm, I'm special or above anyone else in any other way. But here's the thing. If we never say to one another, hey, I'm just concerned for you here, then we won't hold on. One of the mechanisms God has given us is each other. To maintain that relationship with God, to maintain Trusting in Jesus. Are you willing to give your friends a warrant to express their concern for you? Are you willing to say to the people in your small group, in your church, in your connect group, look, call me out at any time, at any point, please, please, I need you to. Are you willing to be bold enough to step outside that cultural norm And recognize that if we don't say something, we're letting people walk in front of a bus. We need to be calling one another to love and good works, to encourage one another. The next thing that's here in the passage um, is from verse 25. And it's saying in order to do that, in order to love and care for one another, we actually need to gather together. Now look at verse uh, 25, chapter 10. Not staying away from our worship meetings, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other. Now, the first little rant I want to have is on the word worship meetings, because it's not there in the original. 
Uh, I don't know why Holman did this. Holman's a great translation. It's really kind of literal, but helpful, um, kind of not clunky. Sometimes I love the ESV as a Bible translation, but sometimes it feels like I'm pushing a table down a tar road, trying to understand what it's saying as I read the Old Testament. It's like, it just doesn't kind of flow as nicely as... But here, the word worship meetings is not there. <laughs> They're kind of saying we think about meetings, the times that we gather together as a church, as, um, as worship meetings. We don't come to church to worship. The word is just gathering. Literally, it's, it's synagogue. It comes from the word synagogue, which means to gather. It's coming together. It's saying, not staying away from your gatherings, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other. And there you see one of the purposes of why we gather, don't you? Every time we gather, we gather to build one another up, to spur one another on to fruitfulness and faithfulness. That's why we gather each week. That's part of why I don't think you can do church from home. You know, some people, you can watch their services live on screen, on the internet. Um, You can't really, you can't just do church together. You can't encourage others that way. Sure, we can hear the best preachers in the world and there's good things to do in that. But unless we're in one another's faces, unless we see one another's lives and you see mine and I see yours, how are we going to make sure we're standing firm in Jesus to the end? We need to be around one another. Looking at a screen, listening to audio, chatting on Skype with a friend, they can all be helpful. But they should not be the bread and butter of Christian relationships and community. Imagine marriage over Skype. Yeah, some of you would be like, hey, there's some good things with that, right? You could just put mute on for a while when, when they're in the rant mode, right? That would be awesome. There are some great positives, but in the end it would just be so thin. You don't get to live to see the the struggles and the joys and there's this great quote in um in Goodwill Hunting. I don't know how many people have seen the movie Goodwill Hunting. Let's have a show. Okay, yeah, good. It's this great quote. Um, Robin Williams is a psychologist and um, Matt Damon is this kind of genius kid who thinks he knows it all. And he's like, he's talking about a girl and this relationship with a girl. He's like, do you like her? And he's like, ah, oh, I'm just not sure if she's the perfect one. And he's like, you're not the perfect one. He's like, the things, I look back over my marriage and the things that I love, that I miss the most about my wife, because she died two years earlier, are the things that used to annoy me, little idiosyncrasies. And they talk about how she, she farted so loud in her sleep that it woke up the dog. And they just laugh at this. And he's like, but that's what I miss. Like, they know one another intimately. And he said, for as long as you want to look for this perfect relationship where everything is perfect, you'll never know someone. We are a congregation of people that we've got our own idiosyncrasies. When we've got weirdnesses and we do funny things, you know, whatever they are. But we need to be around one another so that we can be seeing each other's lives and caring for one another. So we have a deep concern for one another as we're living out this Christian life and be able to call one another in those areas. We need to be together. There's a reality about gathering together that's important and the reason is because well the the day is coming near did you see that at the end the motivation for all this isn't just because oh it's nice to do it's that jesus is coming back and you want to make sure everyone you know is trusting in him is remaining in him has not walked away from him i say that's the importance of coming to church. We don't come to church just for me and my relationship with God. You come to church as much for you as you do for the person next to you. 
That's why hanging out together after church is an important time, to see how we're doing, just to chat briefly and be in one another's lives. That's why being in a small group, a connect group, is so important. Because we get to see how the Word of God impacts one another's lives. We get to be real with one another and share our lives together. I want to be part of a, a group of people that are honest and open, that say, we don't have it all together, but Jesus does. And I want to be more like Him. And I want to help you be more like Him. And I want you to help me to be more like Him. That's what it's about. It's one of the reasons why I think we struggle in New Zealand culture is because we're so transient. The average time for a Kiwi to stay in one house is five years. It's the average. We move around so often. How can we know one another deeply and intimately and care for one another and encourage one another if we're changing all the time if we zip in zip out we're here we're there I can't see how it's helpful now there might be good reasons to go there might be reasons that we need to go I'm not saying we can't I'm not saying that at all but surely we want to stay I mean imagine a marriage that you're like oh yeah five years then we'll move on to someone else now some marriages do that and they miss out on the 15 year mark on the 30 year mark on the 50 year mark We want to be people that are there for one another. And for, to do that, we need to stick around. We need to be in one another's lives. Now, there was a couple that uh, joined us um, in our early days as a church from Canada. Uh, and they were, he was doing a rotation as a doctor um, just for six months. They knew it would be six months. And the first week they came, he's like, do you guys have any small groups? Like, yeah. Like, when are they on? It was like, Thursday. He's like, great. We'll be there. It's like we've moved around so much that we know unless we get plugged into a small group, we're not going to grow and we'll just walk away from Jesus. And that week they were there and it was their wedding anniversary. And some of us would be like, whoa, that's a bit full on. Falling away from Jesus is pretty full on. Forgetting that we've been brought into his relationship. We need to take seriously what's on show here. This is not just some way to obey This is how we hold on as Christians, encouraging one another. Do you have some people around you that you are actively thinking about how you can grow them? Ask again, do you have people around you that you are actively thinking about how you can grow and encourage and stand alongside? We should, right? (laughs) Do you have people around you that are actively thinking that? About you? I think women are generally much better at that than guys. Generally speaking, women get together more, they chat more, they ask each other how they're going. Guys just grunt, hang out, watch a movie, watch a football, whatever we do. Uh, We need a reason to get together. But I want to say to the guys here, notice it doesn't say, depending on your gender, encourage people, encourage one another, spur one another on. No, it says it to everyone. Each of us has a responsibility to love and care for the other. We must do it. And it's interesting that the word spurring one another on that's used, the encourage that's there earlier, it literally means annoying one another. Like, you know how you kind of annoy a horse, a horse with, the, with the spurs as you kind of kick it to move along? That's what it's saying. Bringing things up. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. But we need to honestly and lovingly, from a point of humility, come and say, how are you going? Then there's a little bit we skipped over in, um, <clears throat> in the middle of that section. 
That's because we looked at it as we looked at chapter 6. But I do want us to remember the warning. Walking away from Jesus is real. One of the ways that we see that we don't walk away from Jesus is that we are dependent on one another, that we keep encouraging one another, keep meeting together. Don't come to church to tick off a box. Come to church to make sure your brothers and sisters grow and are fruitful. Join a connect group, not to tick a box, but because you belong to that group of people, because you are theirs and they are yours. Then in 1037, we hear the encouragement at the end to persevere. 1037, for yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I'll have no pleasure in him. Jesus is coming back. The day when being in the presence of God is a physical reality will come. It is coming at any moment. And God has freed you and has given you money and resource and time and intellect and gifts to use you to see one another standing in Jesus, to see me standing in Jesus at the end, to see those friends and people that are around us and the world around us trusting in Him. This is what life is about. I'm not just saying that because it's my job. I'm saying that because the writer of Hebrews is saying to us, this is real. This is why we exist, to glorify God and see people have confidence in Him. So he says in verse 35, So don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. Massive section in this part of Hebrews in application, isn't there? If you're feeling like, whoa, there's lots to do, maybe circle one or two things that you want to work on and go, I want to see others standing in Jesus. I want to change the way I think about coming to church, not to receive, but to give, to encourage, to build others up. That's, that's why we're here. And then keep running. Keep running. For we've been brought into God's presence. Jesus has secured for us eternal life. Hold on to him. Keep encouraging one another. Are you tired? Yeah. I think too many of us come home from work or whatever we've been doing, not tired enough or maybe tired with the wrong things. We should be ending each day tired. Tired, not just from working at our workplace, but from looking for opportunities to share this news of Jesus from encouraging our friends and and getting home, walking in the door, not just slumping down on a couch, but actually going, oh, how, how is my family? How are my flatmates? How are you guys doing? What's been going on for you today? How can we be praying for you today? Talking to your kids and seeing where they're at. Encouraging them, praying with them, putting them to bed. Spending time, if you're married, with your spouse and hearing how their day's been and praying for them and maybe reading the Word together with them and then Perhaps, you know, in those moments when the kids are asleep, spending some time just praying together there. And then at that point, when we go to bed, we should be tired. We should be. Because we want to use all that God has given us to see one another standing in Jesus to the end. So won't you hear with me this encouragement of verse 39. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and obtain life. That's what I want to be like. Someone who takes Jesus at his word and uses all that he has given me for his glory in whatever way that is. So when you pray with me now, 
that God would do exactly that in us. Let's pray.